Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. My name's Catherine McAlpine, and I have the great pleasure in introducing our special guest for this In Conversation, Howard Fine, who will be interviewed by New Zealand Equity member, actor and director, Catherine McRae. We have a New Zealand and Australian audience tuning in, so welcome everyone. I want to take a minute to thank the Equity Foundation's two sponsors, the New Zealand Film Commission and the Australian Industry Superannuation Fund, Media Super. Both the New Zealand Film Commission and Media Super have been longtime supporters of the Equity Foundation and we're so appreciative of their backing. A few technical details. It's important that you all mute yourselves so that both Howard and Catherine are the only ones visible on the screen. And there will be questions towards the end of today's conversation. Can I ask please that you write your questions down in the chat function? We will send a message to you letting you know if your question's been selected. So keep an eye out for that and unmute when it's your turn. Now I'm going to hand over to Catherine and Howard. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, kia ora, everyone. Um, yes, I'm Cathy McRae, and I'm very pleased to be here today with Howard Fine, um, fabulous uh, acting teacher, famous acting teacher, who has a studio in Australia and one in, um, in America. Howard, when you could leave LA, how did you divide your time between those two places? Uh, one week uh, in November and five weeks between June and July. July used to be my time off before the studio was founded in Australia about 10 years ago. So it ended up being the time that I would spend with our program in Australia, in Sydney, and in the studios based in Melbourne. Melbourne. And, and, and I, so both those studios now working with Zoom, mostly? They, two months ago, I didn't know what Zoom was. Yeah. Like all of us. And yes, we are. We are both online. It's called Fine Online now. Oh, and, <laughs> and you, you think that'll be uh, in place for quite a while yet, I imagine. Well, yes. The, one of the nice things to come out of this terrible tragedy is the discovery of what could be done on the internet and on Zoom in particular. And so I have students now around the world who could never normally have been in class unless they were in Melbourne or LA, so it's been, that part of it is really exciting and wonderful. So we'll keep that even when the world reopens. So you'll have, you're working with scenes, you'll have someone in you know, Denmark and someone in LA working together in the same scene. <coughs> yeah, right, and you pin each other's uh, feed and then you just see the two people working on their scene. Or we have self-tapes that people submit for the different classes and everybody can watch everybody's tape and then I can critique it and work with them. Fantastic. And um, so, Howard, you developed um, something you called the foundation. Is that what you still call it to, to this day? And can you yep. briefly explain some of the tenets of that uh, for the people who... Yes. I, if I had to reduce my entire uh, training, it's the difference between why and how. It is my strongly held belief if you supply the why, the how takes care of itself. And so in the foundation, everybody learns that every character they're ever going to play is found inside themselves. 
And I always say, how many characters do we all play in the course of a day? Many. They're all different parts of ourselves. So learning how to use your own life experiences, how to draw on your own sources, how to understand what a scene is about, that no writer is writing about every day. Characters are in crisis. They're at crossroads. They're in moments of critical decision. And so we learn the questions to ask ourselves and then how to put ourselves in the shoes of that human being without judgment. And is, that, is your foundation course, the foundation, is it taught mostly through exercises or through using scenes? Both. It, it starts with exercises and it starts with learning my eight steps of how to break a scene down and what, what rehearsal, what correct rehearsal is all about. And then I have an exercise called the neutral scene. Online, we've been doing it as the neutral monologue. It's, a, it's just a series of words and the actors have got to fill in time, place, relationship, circumstance, conflict. And people begin to realize it's not about the words, it's about what you bring to the words. So it's a combination of exercises, building a journal of sources of your emotional life experiences. It's learning how to apply that then to the text. And we do other exercises also from Uta Hagen's uh, A Challenge for the Actor. She was my mentor, and so I derive a lot from Hagen. So we do some of the object exercises as well as part of the foundation. And you were first introduced to Uta Hagen at, like, at school when you were still... What yeah, I was, a student, I was a student when I first met her. She wouldn't have remembered that. <laughs> and I never reminded her of that. I met her years later when I... I, I had studied with people who had studied under Uta, but I'd never had Uta myself. So when we met, I was an established teacher in the field already. And, and she was quite sharp and quite funny. And she looked at me and she said, so you're the famous Howard Fine. And I said, and you're the even more famous Uta Hagen. <laughs> and we hugged and became great friends after that. Were you teaching in New York at that point? Or? I started uh, in New York, but I moved to LA in 1985. So I was already uh, established in Los Angeles and ended up bringing Uta twice in the 90s to teach at my studio. And we filmed uh, the DVD, Uta Hagen's acting class. The majority of it was filmed at my studio. If you watch that, you'll see me in the 90s. It's not a good look, but in any case, I'm, I'm in there. So did that shift how, did that um, reflect you moving more and more into a film? Like, like when you started teaching, were you mostly working with uh, theater actors or have you always worked with both? When I came up the ranks in New York, it was much more from the stage. Here in LA, before I even started to teach, I did an internship with the casting office here so that I could understand the different demands of television and film. And I even took uh, a six month directing film intensive uh, before I even started to teach so that I would understand how to make that shift. And then I started to work, my first celebrity student in Los Angeles was Paul Stanley, the lead singer of KISS, he brought the same audition material to the top three coaches in LA and me, his agent happened to sit in on my class at another studio and she gave my name and he pulled up in his convertible Porsche and he came in, I'm in my living room in my apartment and he brought me the material and we worked on it and he said, well, you're my guy. And then I worked with him he went in for the audition for William Friedkin 
who stopped him and said, that was amazing. Who were you studying with? He said, oh, this new guy, Howard Fine. And then the following week, I was at Paul's bowling birthday party with Robert Downey Jr., Sarah Jessica Parker, all the members of the Brat Pack, and suddenly I'm being introduced as a celebrity acting coach. I didn't even know there was such a thing. And so it just went that way, but it, some things by skill and some things by absolute luck and coincidence. And what did that, did that move into uh, working with screen actors? Was that quite fascinating to you, the differences with the th between theater and, and screen? Yeah, well, I, what I found is good acting on stage, as you know, good acting on stage is good acting on film. Bad acting is worse on film because the camera magnifies it. So if, when I get asked what's the difference between stage television and film, not a lot, except if you're on film, you better darn well be honest in what you're doing because it's gonna magnify it and it's going to be recorded and retained. So you really have to know how to work honestly. And it's not, I remember, it, uh, I mean, this is something that's been discussed a lot, isn't it? It's not, screen acting is not about squashing things down to be, thing. it's about the truth of the moment and, and that can be intimate or can be screeching. Yes, it? we're in a different space, right? Not all theater's the same. If you're in a 3000 seat theater, that's different than a 40-seat theater. 40-seat theater, you're already at the film level. So not all theater's the same. We adapt to space all the time. And for television and film, are you in a long shot, a medium shot, a close-up, an extreme close-up? If you're in an extreme close-up, you're in a very small room. <laughs> it doesn't require that much to communicate. And so we make those adjustments. Of course, it's intimate, but it doesn't mean we're less. It doesn't mean we're not firing on all cylinders. It means it takes less to communicate it and you have to make that adjustment. Beautiful, yeah. Just going back to Uta Hagen, um, what, how did her work sort of stand out from other training methods way back, you know, when she first Hagen, Hagen was never a guru. If she walked into the room and people started to applaud, she'd stop them. So she never said, I'm the way, I am the light, follow me. She was, very much a scientist, she was practical. Every day she would look at her own work as an actress and she would look at her, at her work as a teacher. I'd be with her sometimes after she's taught all day and she'd be thinking through, was there a better way of saying that? Was that clear? Was I 100% accurate? She never stopped refining her work. It's why she wrote the second book, A Challenge for the Actor. She used to say, throw away respect for acting, her first book, which is still, a beautiful book. But she always felt she could do better. And so she was practical, she was clear, and she was never abusive to actors on any level. She would work as a colleague. And one of the things that I tried to pick up from her, she would make a few key points and then let the actors go and rehearse. And her point was, if the teacher helps too much, the actor doesn't learn. So you have to be careful not to do all of the work and rob the actor of the discovery or the failure. And so she would hit just the points they needed to hear to open the doors. But then what happens is if you work that way, if you teach that way, the actor is then empowered. And when they have a breakthrough, it's theirs. It's not the teacher imposing it. That's a fantastic note for the directors in the audience, isn't it? 
just touched it lightly and yeah, um, do, do actors still talk about the method in America? Is that still a major? Oh yeah, everything that has ever been taught is still being examined and still being retaught. Mm. What, what became known as the method here is very much what Strasbourg tended to do with the work and he focused so much on sensory work. And over time, there's a whole school of thought that works that way. Then you'd have the Meisner people who would only use imagination to arouse emotion and they dismissed using real experience. Stanislavski was afraid of writing the books because he was afraid people would say, oh, that's the Bible. Because he was, it was new. Prior to Stanislavski, there was no acting training. You would apprentice to a theater company and you would watch the greats and you'd work your way from the hinterlands to Moscow. And there was no way of training it. Stanislavski began to break it down and see if it could be taught. But he was experimenting with it. And then Hagen found Harold Klerman, who was her mentor. And that's where she got the work from. And she kept experimenting with it. So what I say to people is, it's all interesting, but in the way that medicine has moved forward over the years, so has acting training. And hopefully each teacher has run their leg of the relay race with it. And uh, Stanislavski was reacting against quite a, a big acting style, a performative kind of melodramatic style, would that be right? He yes, was and, and still, what changed, what changed Hagen in her work is she went to see Lorette Taylor in The Glass Menagerie. And to Uda's dying day, she was offered the role of Amanda many times in The Glass Menagerie, Tennessee Williams, and never took it because she felt she had seen the definitive. So she went to see Lorette Taylor and then she would bring friends and she would say, wait till she does this and this and this. And that night, Lorette Taylor didn't do that and that and that. So Uda kept going and she said, I realized she's living up there. She's still Amanda within the given circumstances of the glass menagerie, that's not changing. But moment to moment, she's newly alive every single time. And that is what led Uda to embrace that work. So if pre-planning, pre-shaping is still common now, I think about how common it was in Hagen's day and then absolutely in Stanislavski's day. It's still happening now, but there are actors who are working absolutely organically and moment to moment, and that's exciting. Interesting. Um, so tell me some of the core, I oh, know you said that earlier, one of the core tenets of, of the foundation, what, um, I mean, that, that level of play that you're just mentioning there of in, living in the moment, that would be one of your, the most important things you want actors to take yes. away. Yes, I teach people that pre-shaping is akin to planning all the moves you're going to make in a tennis match in advance of the match. You can practice your backhand, your forehand, your serve, your volleys, but then you have to play the match that's coming at you. An acting technique used incorrectly becomes a roadmap of the how to play everything, as opposed to using preparation to think, who am I? What just happened? Where did I come from? What personalizations do I have that connect me to what's going on in this scene? Also that I can surrender and live moment to moment authentically in the given circumstances. And when we work correctly, our talent comes through us. We wish that our creativity lived in the thinking mind where we could figure everything out in advance. 
in that case, we could send our choices on ahead of us. We wouldn't need to show up. But creativity doesn't live in the thinking mind. I've never successfully taught an unintelligent actor. So you have to be intelligent to be a good actor. As far as I know, it cannot be done. You have to be bright. But that's not ultimately where our creativity lives. You use the mind as a way to get deeper than that. So that something comes out of you that you didn't plan, you didn't expect. And that's truly when we're in that place where we're inspired. It takes a lot of work to get to a place of freedom. One of the mistakes especially young actors make is they want freedom, but freedom comes from mastery. You have to know your stuff backwards and forwards, including your memorization. Actors, memorize the words word for word. Discipline yourselves. That writer has agonized over those words and chances are they've written something better than you are coming up with. If you learn it backwards and forwards, and that means tedium and drilling, so that you don't have to be in line retrieval land when you're acting. If you're still trying to remember the next thing, you can't let go and be present and be moment to moment. So having freedom comes from mastery. It's not something we just snap a finger and say, I wanna be free and in the moment. And to simplify it, would you say the, the objective stays the same, doesn't it? The yes, absolutely. absolutely. You have to fall in love with someone. You so have to know what you want. But and it's how you fall in love with them, that's yeah. what you want to see. 100% of the time, the objective is what repeats. But moment to moment, the degree of the actions happen in response to what the other person's giving you and what's coming back. And you have to be open and present to that. <laughs> And that is truly allowing a moment-to-moment -moment life. I just lost your picture, Kathy. Huh. Oh, there you are. You're back. Good. Sorry. Be my internet. Sorry, Howard. Um, do you encourage actors to think about their different selves? Their, how do you explore that in the foundation? Yes. We use one of Hagen's uh, exercises called Changes of Self. And it is a phone conversation and they actually happen, you don't invent them, with three different people that bring out three different roles that you play in your life. So for example, if I'm speaking to a young acting student, I feel quite wise and mature. If I speak to a scientist who's working on a cure for cancer, I feel foolish and ignorant. So the age and the experience level of who we speak to conditions change of self. Clothing conditions change of self. Clothing, one of the most underused acting tools. Hagen used to say, right down to the underwear, right? Put on the clothes. Because if, if you're a woman and you're in an evening dress and heels, or you're a male and you're in a tux or a suit, we carry ourselves differently. We don't feel that we want to sit on the floor and eat chips and dip and watch the game. But <laughs> throw on sweatpants and sneakers brings out a completely different part of yourself. So first we have to learn that every character we're going to play is inside of us. What brings it out, who we're talking to, and the role we play. And then we identify the roles we play in our lives. Customer, salesperson, teacher, student, employer, employee, uh, lover, best friend, son, daughter, mother, father. All of it is a role that we play day in and day out. And one of Hagen's points is we don't need hours to shift. You can be in the middle of a conversation, a romantic conversation, and you're talking to your romantic partner and you're a very sweet conversation, and the telemarketer beeps in. And a second later, it's, yes, this is he. 
No, no, not interest, not interest, thank you. Hi, honey. And then right back. <laughs> and those are all inside us. But we have to know who we really are. The reason judging a character is so common is that we tend, all of us, to see ourselves as the heroes of our own story. We see everyone else as the problem. It's why I say never identify who's the antagonist and who's the protagonist. Everyone is the protagonist of their own story. But bad behavior doesn't tend to incorporate into our self-concept, which is generally positive. We feel justified if anything that we do, somebody else might think is negative, but we feel justified. And so the job of the actor is to justify, not to judge, but we have to know ourselves. And that's why taking an inventory of our lives is so important. Hagen, Hagen used to say she saw herself as running through fields and gardens until she realized she didn't run through fields and gardens. <laughs> she had to take a good hard look in the mirror. I'm sorry, you're going to make a point. I, I, so what, what do you say to the, to the young person who's not been a parent and uh, now they're asked to, be, to play a mother or a father? How do, they, how do you assist them? How do you help them with that? Well, first of all, there's no cookie cutter way to be a parent at all. You have to see what that script is giving you. It's not just being a parent in general. It's what that writer has given you. So who is that parent in that script? Is that particular parent an abusive parent? Why are they abusive? Were they themselves abused? And so we have to use a combination of real experience and imagination all the time. I say to my students, I hope to God you have to use your imaginations. Imagine if everything in every script has actually happened to you. Your life has been horrendous. So I hope you have to use your imagination. So we usually, I teach both sources and imagination, and usually it's a fusion of the two. We use both. By age 18, we've experienced everything on some level. But the good news about being an actor is you don't get too old to do it. At 30, an athlete is old, but an actor has the potential to get better and better because life experience is deepening, it just is. We all know stories about um, abusive teachers or abusive uh, directors. How, how the hell do actors keep themselves safe? Um, what, what advice well, certainly don't pay for it. If you're <laughs> on a set that's, and you're being paid a lot of money, I don't know, you have to figure that out. But it, you don't pay to let someone abuse you. The, there, there's a lot of unethical stuff that goes on. I would never ask somebody to reveal something personal that they don't want to talk about in front of an audience, ever. I will help the actor locate what it is. In fact, one of the American acting coaches, who shall remain nameless, who taught a master class in Australia, this got back to me, had gotten a young lady to reveal publicly for the first time in her life that she had been raped. Well, the acting coach is not God. How do you know what happens to that person when they leave that class? So the acting coach is not your therapist and is not God, is there as a colleague to help you grow in your work. So the, the teachers that yell and scream and abuse, and I'm gonna really say this to actors so that they inoculate themselves from it, is incompetent. They are doing that because they cannot actually critique the scene. So they yell and scream and abuse the actor and make the actor think it's their fault. And the actor, already so sensitive, internalizes that and thinks, what did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. No one gets to speak to you that way. And so 
it's not about yelling, it's not about screaming, it's not about people revealing personal things that they don't want to reveal. It is about a craft. Now, that doesn't mean that the acting teacher is easy. I'm not easy. I will be extremely direct and, and honest in my feedback. But there's no punishment involved in that. There doesn't need to be any punishment or abuse. It's hard enough. And it's scary to get up in front of a teacher. And that teacher has an ethical responsibility to realize the sensitive artist that they have in their hand at that moment and to be careful with it. So yes, do not pay for it. Don't let anybody abuse you, for heaven's sake. Mm. Very difficult if it's a director, I imagine. If it's a director, it's a, a different ball game. I'm, I'm beginning to think that the era of bad behavior is over throughout the world. I hope it is. Because again, the, the best people are so not that way. It is rare that somebody with that level of a mood disorder is at the top of the profession. The best people are not that way. Like so, the, the, feels like Weinstein, the, the Weinstein trial and, and his imprisonment is a, a bit of a line in the sand, isn't it? I hope that the world has totally shifted and that, as I said, the era of bad behavior is over. You're not allowed to abuse anyone on any level. But certainly, leaving aside even sexual abuse, emotional abuse is abuse as well. You're not allowed to do it. Oh, he was a terrible bully, wasn't he, to all his colleagues as well as the awful stuff he got. That's my understanding. I never, uh, I've never met him, but both stories are certainly mm. out there. Yes, it always seems strange to me. I mean, as an artist, you want your actors to be open and vulnerable and to be able to access their work and to be a bully. And it seems to be completely... It shuts people down. Mm. You don't get the best out of people. Mm. I, I am known for being a, a tough teacher and a demanding teacher, but I want people to believe that they can, not to be shut down. I want them to be excited to go back into the next rehearsal with new discoveries. This is, what a privilege to do what we do. It, 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 this is keeping me sane. This conversation and the online teaching right now is the only time of my day that feels normal. And, it's, it's such a privilege to do what we do to investigate the human experience and the human condition, whether you're a director or a teacher or an actor or any of the support personnel that create along. It's such a collaborative, comprehensive art form. And as you know, it involves so many different skills. One of my favorite things ever was the Hollywood costume exhibit that I happened to go see in Melbourne, of all things. Why I waited to see it there, I don't know. But... So many actors wrote that the moment they put those clothes on is when it all came together for them. And if you think about it, we involve lighting and sound and set and costume and makeup. And it's such a collaborative art form and a joyous one. But you want somebody leading each experience that's going to inspire people, not shut them down. It takes a lot of pressure off us as actors to, not, to remember that all of that is doing so much work for us, isn't it? That, that, that the set director has done a lot of work. Yes, for us. That you're part of a whole crew trying to make everything work. Mm. You don't and have also, the whole story. It's and not artists, the remember how valuable you are. At, at, look at what's happening in the world at this moment. Where's everyone turning? To entertainment. So don't let anyone ever devalue an artist. Because if we took away everyone's binge watching right now, what would they do? 
Yes, next year everyone's worried about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everyone's going to be filming in New Zealand in a minute. We're hoping, Howard. We're hoping. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be encouraged. Um, tell me what you what you recommend to actors when they first get this script, and and what is your what is what do you encourage? What's the relationship between the actor and the script that you encourage? Detective work. Read it carefully and read it many times before you decide to do anything. Make sure you know what's there because anything you miss in your reading of the script, you're going to miss something that's eventually actable. So read it carefully and read it many times. A good script you could read every day and you're gonna see new things in it all the time. So that's number one is be fluent with the script and with the story. And then if you're playing a role in it, you start with my step number one, which is who am I? And I phrase it as I, not who is he or she. So that you now begin to see this is you as this character. And look for every clue that's in the script that might set you on the road to creating a backstory that actually helps you. I tell actors, do not sit at a computer and write 60 pages of backstory that you can never remember. It will be of no use to you. You have to attach it to your own memories, your own experiences. And if there's homework to be done when you're working on a role, if you're playing uh, a neurologist or you're playing uh, an attorney, or, you have to learn about that profession. So there's homework to be done that is a great joy, really, because you get to find out about so many different people and how to walk in their shoes. And then we look at each scene, draw a timeline of the major events of the script, and begin to do the work one scene at a time. But I would say, first and foremost, read your script. In my classes, we start with a table read of a scene, and I challenge my students to know the script better than I do. And it is rare, it has happened, but it's rare. I start to ask them questions and they look stumped. And it's in the text. I'm referring to the text always, it's right there. And so you gotta know how to read a script and read a script really carefully. I'm a big fan of writers. I'm starstruck by writers. <laughs> yes, on the subject of writers, I, I have read several of David Mamet's books and he, he intrigues me because every so often he'll say something that I, I feel I vehemently disagree with, but then find myself still thinking about it several years later. And one of those moments was he's in his true and false book when he sort of basically said, actors stop bloody acting and just say the lines. What? <laughs> he, yeah, he, no, he that, that, doesn't tend to, that doesn't tend to work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it puzzled me, I have to say. Where, why is he wrong, Howard? Because it's not about just saying the words. They're, any actor can read a line intelligently, but do you know who you are, what you're saying, why you're saying it, and how it connects to you at that moment in time? Very often, what we say is not the truth of how we feel. We spend the majority of the time actually denying how we feel. And so if you literally take the line, I'm over it, I'm not in love anymore, and you simply say the line, I'm over it, I'm not in love anymore, as opposed to looking at those words as clues to the circumstance, to this relationship that you don't seem to be able to shed, the lines are not the destination, they're clues to circumstance. And so the top level of the line is actually bad acting because rarely 
Think how many times in life we say what we want to be the truth. I'm done with it. I'm not doing that again. We're not only speaking for the other person, we're also speaking for ourselves because that's how we want to feel. And so it's not in the words themselves, it's under the words. Every scene exists in what's not said. So you have to explore what do I want to say that I don't. And if you don't find that, you're not going to find the texture of what's really there. I eventually felt some of his, what he's saying, I think, is that he's saying, let the context uh, tell the Well, story. I think he's probably frustrated by actors who have created backstories who that are. are completely irrelevant, unrelated, and focusing on entirely the wrong scene, the wrong things. They're not looking at what the scene is about. They're off on some tangent. And I had an actress who, uh, this, the scene is all about, she's denying uh, something that's happened with her boyfriend and how controlling he was, which led to their breakup. And she's being interviewed by a detective in the scene. She spent her entire time on researching the courtyard that it would be set in and how loudly she would speak inside the courtyard and, and didn't spend any time on what happened when you were dating this guy. What, why did you break up? What happened? What are you hiding now? It was all on the courtyard. Not that you can't look at where you are and why you're there and what's around you, but it was a complete uh, tangent from what the scene's about. And so I'm sure he's responding to some degree on people not taking what the scene's about and adding in all sorts of stuff that doesn't go. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of that. Where you, would, you obviously both agree is that respect for the text and, uh, and knowing it so well that... Um, yeah, in that, that way, I, I, I certainly respect him as a writer. I mm. certainly respect him as a writer and he's a great writer. Mm. So, but I'm sure he's frustrated by some of the tangents that people go on in the name of acting technique. Because I feel that too. Now, Catherine, um, uh, co-host, do, do, are there people with questions or should I, Howard and I keep talking? I... There are questions. Alex. Uh, yes. It's Alex here. There are questions. So I'll go to Melanie Munt. Hi, Melanie. Hi, Howard. How are you? Uh, well. Thank you for coming to do this. It's really, it's fantastic to hear your um, thoughts about developing character and scene and everything. Um, I was just wondering what your approach is to Shakespearean text and if you um, do much work with that, um, do you sort of look at the iambic pentameter or do you think that there is particular acting technique that works best with the text? Um, do you find like physicality in getting into the role more beneficial than an intellectual approach? Um, I guess both in contemporary. I think it's all, it's all things. I don't focus on iambic pentameter. The only time it really comes into play is if you want to know what thought connects to what thought. It does, it can help there. But it's the same work that we do when we are working on anything. It's finding where the character lives inside you. It's making the speech part of your life. One of the exercises that I love to give when somebody's working on Shakespeare, and we do a fair amount of it uh, at my studio, is Hagen's 10th exercise called historical imagination. With historical imagination, you spend time on simple daily activities in time, in character, 
but a scene that's not in the play. So let's say you might do Juliet getting ready for bed, Romeo getting up in the morning and writing a letter. As you do that, you begin to see that this is a person who lived, not an idea. Because with Shakespeare, as with anything else in the period, you want to imagine you lived then as that person in that circumstance. And then it's making the language part of your own life until you can use the language and not be afraid of it. So instead of where are you going, you start saying whither goest, and it becomes part of you. One of the mistakes that we make with period work is trying to figure out how they behave then. Human beings throughout history are the same. What has changed? Clothing, customs, language. But since the beginning of time, people have lived, loved, lost, been betrayed. It's all the same. So I approach Shakespeare as I approach anything. We understand the time and the world of it and the language of it and the clothing of it and the customs of it but it's still about human behavior always. And Shakespeare, Shakespeare's mind is the mind of God. It's impossible. If you look at King Lear and Edmund talking about nowadays, you can get away with any behavior because everyone's willing to bring everything on the stars, on astrology. And you think, how did he know that then? So Shakespeare, when it's done well, is incredibly contemporary when it's done well. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my question is in terms of hitting certain marks and thinking about the technical aspects of what you have to do as an actor in performance, how do you then also play and be in the moment? Because I know a lot of actors, we love to play, um, but you're also kind of stuck with that, oh, well, I've got to be here for the camera or for yes, the spotlight. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. is and one are, more important than the other? There, there are things that are going to be cued to technical things and you have to do them. So, but you've got to fill the reason in constantly. So you don't simply mechanically do the actions. One of my students, uh, Elizabeth Berkeley Lauren, was doing an episode of CSI Miami, and she's about to have a difficult conversation with her son. And she couldn't wait to call me from the set to tell me what she had done. So she's looking out the window, and she turns to say something to her son, and the director says, wait, I love you in profile. The lighting is just beautiful there. So go from your back to us looking out the window, stand in profile, and then turn and speak to your son. So she thought very quickly, he wants that shot, so you have to give it to him. But she thought, what would make me stop? And she thought, wait a minute, what if I'm debating whether or not I even wanna say this to my son? So she went from her back to us to profile and weighed whether or not she wanted to speak and then decided to and turned and faced him. He got his shot, but she wasn't a bad actor. She filled in immediately the why of it. So even if a director is very technical and tells you cross on that line and go do this here, you've got to constantly go back to the why of that so that you don't mechanically go through the motions. Brilliant, thank you. You're welcome. 
Hi, Michael. Hello, everyone. Australia and New Zealand audience. Howard Fine, how are you? I'm well. Hi, Michael. Uh, my question is, what are the three key things you can offer for actors to work on every day? I would tell you to, number one, read as much as you possibly can. Not just scripts, but books, history, psychology, art. So as much reading as you can. Work on stillness and concentration. There is an epidemic of attention deficit disorder throughout the world. And we have to learn to make ourselves still. When you can make yourself still for a period of time, what you do will be by choice rather than habit. And then it is taking stock and inventory of your own life, your own experiences, what you have been through, your own sources, and becoming fully aware through self-observation of your own behaviors, good and bad. It's easy to see the good stuff in ourselves, but we have to know who we are from light to dark. Because if, if I look at a role and I say, that's not me, there's a part of myself I don't see. So you, to be a great actor, you have to know yourself from light to dark and everything in between. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. I have a question here, Howard, from, um, that's been privately sent to me. Who are some of the actors you most admire? the moment? Uh, I think Meryl Streep is God. Uh, Sean Penn would be another. Uh, Denzel Washington is another. Uh, and uh, some of my own students, uh, Will Smith, uh, an up-and-coming actor who's actually was just filming in, in uh, Australia, and he had been filming in New Zealand. His name is Austin Butler. He started in the Shannara Chronicles. Uh, which was filmed in New Zealand. Uh, but Austin has been with me for eight years from foundation all the way up. And in the past few years, he booked Iceman Cometh on Broadway opposite Denzel Washington. And talk about memorization, they, they did the short version, which was four hours long. And it has to be word for word memorized according to O'Neill's estate. So we had that ready before he left LA. And day one of rehearsal, Austin had all four hours perfectly memorized. So did Denzel Washington. And talk about being in the moment. Uh, there's an in conversation on my Facebook page with me, with Austin. And we tell the story, tells the story about working opposite Denzel and Iceman. One night, Denzel picked up a chair and pulled, put it over his head. Next night, he didn't. One night, he cried in a particular part. Next night, he didn't. And Austin said, you better be present and ready to play because it's going to come at you and he's going to be right there. And then Austin got uh, the Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then he had a chance to audition for Baz Luhrmann for Elvis. And the audition material, ladies and gentlemen, for Baz Luhrmann's Elvis was Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending. That was the audition material for Elvis. Non-actors need not apply. And Austin, we worked on it and he booked Elvis. So now he's Elvis opposite Tom Hanks uh, in Baz Luhrmann's new film. But the game change came from doing Broadway. And that changed everything for Austin, going from a good looking young Hollywood actor to a serious actor. That's the game change. So it's the homework that you're willing to do. When I worked with Will Smith on a movie called Concussion a few seasons ago, he played Dr. Bennett Omalu, 
And Dr. Omalo is a living person who performs autopsies. He's the person who discovered CTE, the concussions that athletes get, especially football players. So what did Will do as part of his homework? He observed Dr. Omalu perform autopsies twice from beginning to end, which begins, as Will described to me, with a diagonal slice across the cadaver. Will almost passed out watching it, but he had to learn because he, in the movie, is performing an autopsy and his hands had to be educated as to what it entailed. So that's the type of homework that an actor does. Those are some of my favorites, along with another one, Carla Gugino, uh, who has done a ton of Broadway and uh, is just a workaholic. She was supposed to play Stella in Streetcar Named Desire at Williamstown this summer, but that is not now happening. And I've got one more here. Uh, how does Howard have advice on judging good versus bad acting, gut instincts or something more technical? Good acting, bad acting tries to demonstrate something. Good acting will make you feel. And so if you are moved by a performance, you're watching good acting. It's triggering something in you. If you are intrigued, if you want to know more because you're fascinated by what the actor is doing, you will know. We can see bad acting a mile off and audiences are becoming very educated. Several years ago, I was seeing a play on Broadway, which wasn't very good. And this little old lady was sitting next to me. And at intermission, she turned and she said, what do you think? And I thought, well, I don't want to intimidate the poor dear with my vast knowledge. And I said, oh, I'm enjoying it. And she looked at me as if I'm insane and said, you are? And then she began to deconstruct the entire thing brilliantly. And I looked at her and I said, are you an actress? And she said, no. A director? Uh, no, I just enjoy coming. And I thought, oh my God, if that's the level that's sitting there, we better be really good. So we can spot that acting pretty much a mile off. We've got a question from John. Hi, John. Hi, hi, hi Howard, how are you? Thanks for this. I'm well. Um, I was just wondering um, what your approach was to when you have a script or you're working on text that you that probably isn't as top notch as say you know the writing that you know actors I think aspire to sure. work at where it's you know the majority of the stuff you mean yes yeah, yeah. like is is there something because obviously I know we spend so much time on really good text when training and to really sure. know how to do that what's your advice on work on working with text that isn't as up to par? Well, first of all, you can be real in whatever you're doing. And so we don't want to, if it's really bad comedy, you don't want to simply play the joke. You want to find what's at stake and what's the scene really about and how it connects to you. And if it's melodrama, you have to be careful not to hit it too on the nose because easily, if you, if you take soap opera style writing and overindulge in it, it's unbearable. So you actually learn to play against it. But pretty much we can make weaker material somewhat better. You're not gonna turn it into Shakespeare, it can't be done. So you can't drive yourself crazy trying to, trying to make it what it's not. But you can be real and authentic. Because I look at it this way, in every project, including the weaker project, somebody stands out as better than the others. 
And that's the person who's most believable. So we don't want to let bad script or bad direction make us be untruthful in what we're doing. I had a student who did a horror film and the director said every single scene, he told them to scream and he didn't. And so they were at the screening and the director came up to him and said, you know, you're the only one in the entire movie who's believable. <laughs> so every once in a while, you actually resist. The, the majority of directors are gonna be good and gonna be helpful. But every once in a while, you're dealing with somebody who's not helpful. Thank you. Sure. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, my question is regarding like self-tapes and auditioning via Zoom. I'm like struggling to find that same energy with the reader that we do when we're in the room. Do you have any tips for this? Well, with self-tape, you can control the reader and who you're working with. So try to give yourself a colleague that knows how to work. Mm. There's, there's no reason to do a self-tape with somebody who can't read. The old thing used to be sometimes you'd be in a casting office and the casting director would be flat and that's hard to do. So self-tapes are actually, self-tapes, everybody, I'm going to tell you this, invest in equipment that you can have at home to self-tape because self-tapes are the future. It's where everything is going and you don't want to constantly go out and have to pay for studio space. So it's worth having the equipment for a home setup. Uh, but know that you can control that. You can choose what take you're going to send. And so it's always better to have a good reader. They don't have to be brilliant. They don't have to be the same sex uh, that you need, but they can't be absolutely flat because it does tend to pull the acting down. Yeah. Hope that oh. helps. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Hello. Hi, kia ora. Kia ora. Uh, I have a question. How do you know when you are done preparing for an audition or a role? Because I get to a point where I'm like, is this enough? Is this enough? You know, usually, it's usually when you don't get it, you go, oh, I didn't do enough. But when do you know in yourself that yeah. you're done? They're, they're, listen, my favorite people are never satisfied. There's a wonderful quote, Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille. You might look it up. It's a beautiful quote. And she says, there is no satisfaction at any time. No artist is pleased. There's right. only right. there's only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than others. A blessed <laughs> unrest. Okay. So just know, no artist is pleased. The the people who are too easily pleased, I don't care for. But don't make yourself insane. There's a limit to what you can do in a short period of time. You want to make sure you're doing who am I? You understand the role, you connect to it, you relate to the circumstances. I, and I'll tell everybody, spend no time on the differences between you and a character. Don't pick up a role and say, oh, this isn't me or this is so different. It's akin to making a friend. Find what you have in common with every role until it connects to a place inside you. So we do the best job we can, obviously, if you then get the role and you've got time to really prepare, there's more to do. But do what you can do and then give it your best shot and then, and then leave it alone. But I'd rather have someone who cares too much than someone who cares too little. The person who cares too little, I think, should go away and find something else to do. It's a character flaw. The person who cares too much can learn to lighten up. 
you can learn that. But Thank I 100% of the time would rather have the person who cares too much. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, if you want to ask a question, um, a couple of people have asked me, um, can you please uh, send your question to, to Alex the, or under Equity Foundation? Because she can then bring it on screen and I can't. Hi, Sam. Hi there. Um, I just finished shooting my first feature with one of your graduates, Howard. So thank you so much for preparing him so well. He was really good. Oh, good. Who was it? Uh, his name is Vincent Andriano. Great. Oh, sure. He graduated the full-time program in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely amazing. So yeah, thank you for preparing him so well. Um, uh, this question is not about him. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I do Vincent anyway, but go ahead. Uh, any advice on working with actors who have locked into a pre-prepared performance and they're struggling to break out of that and to be there in spirit? Yes, there's a simple exercise that you can do that brings pre-shaping. And that is, it's to repeat the last line, changing the pronoun, and just say, hey, here's an exercise. Let's do this for fun. So if their line is, you don't love me, you repeat back, I don't love you, and then your own line. You only repeat the very last thing that someone says. But it forces them to work off of what they just got, and they can't be in their head planning the next thing. It immediately breaks pre-shaping, and it's fun to do. So I would suggest using my simple repeat exercise, not to be confused with the Meisner repeat. This is a different version. Vincent actually did that, so yeah. Oh, Vincent did it, yeah. <laughs> Thank That's you so well, much. I don't know where he got it. Right. <laughs> actually, I'll just ask, I'll ask it on behalf of someone because yes. I can't get them on Spotlight. The question is, uh, what is important for an actor to consider in the medium and the long shot, as opposed to the very close up? What's critical in each take? It's that it's a different space. So if you're in a long shot, you've got, you're in a bigger room. You have a little bit more room to express yourself. If you're in a close-up or an extreme close-up, you're in a much smaller space. So really imagine we adjust to the space we're in day in and day out. But in every one of those shots, all the cylinders have to be firing. It's not that you are less. Our, our voice director, David Corey, says, when you listen to music in a bigger space, we turn it up. When we're in a smaller space, we turn it down. But all the same notes are still being hit. It's not less when you turn it down. You've got to remember that as actors. When it's more subtle, it's still firing on all cylinders. Hi, Claire. Hi. Hi Claire. Kira, Howard, Kira, um, Kathy, lovely to hear from you both. Um, I, this is kind of connected to Michael's question earlier. Um, but I'm sort of aware at the moment, certainly for myself and I know for a lot of people, um, we're facing or we're inside of a period of time where even auditioning is, is much ha happening on a much lower frequency. Um, so I'd love to hear like some ideas or recommendations about ways to kind of gentle ways that we can keep connected to our craft day in, day out. Well, yeah. this, your union is providing wonderful things. This is one of them. That's true. Uh, Uta Hagen has the 10 object exercises. You can see them on her DVD and you can also get her book. She created the object exercises as a way to stay in shape in between acting gigs. So it was actually created for this exact purpose. And so any of the object exercises are great to do. And if you can do them for colleagues, do them for each other. Be a support system for each other right now. 
If you can have play reading groups or script reading groups, do that on Zoom. Find ways to still do what you do every day because otherwise we lose the joy in, in being who we are. And as I said, the most normal time in my day is this online. So anything you can do with colleagues, anything you can do on your own to do the object exercises, anything you can do in terms of reading, meditation, those are all things that we can still do at home to feel that we're artists. And definitely use, use your friends. Try out monologues on each other. Yeah. And write, if any of you write, the tales are gonna to be told of this time. This is an inflection point in history. And many stories are gonna to be told. This is the time to write and maybe even produce some at-home stuff in terms of what people are going through mm. and, and create, right? Create as much as you possibly can. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Ron. Howdy. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm well, thanks. Um, my question is, this, this question may have been fired a couple of times, but just personally for you, what has been the best advice you've ever had, whether it be on set or in class or offset, whether it be acting or not acting, just to take on board with you for forever? What has really changed uh, you? Uh, it's a quote that was shared with me by a motivational speaker. Her name is Ayanla Van Zant, And Ayanla Van Zant said, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And that stays with me because we tend to think that it's different when we do the big things, but the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And it's a game changer for me in terms of understanding myself and others, because that's the truth. And if we give the greatest care to even the littlest thing, that's who we are. And if we don't, that's also who we are. Mm -hmm. So that, that has been a life altering uh, quote that I live by. Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. We've got about two minutes left. Is there another question, Alex? Oh, we go. Hi, Grace. Hi. Hi, Grace. Hi Howard. Um, thanks for doing this, by the way. Um, so I, I have a problem of doing all the Utahagen questions um, in preparation for a role, but leaving it at home. So I feel like it gets me stuck in my head sometimes when performing. And I think I'm asking whether you have any exercises to get you out of your head. Sure. Okay. Well, well what, what my guess from my years of teaching is that you are a perfectionist personality. Yeah. And so what will happen with that, you're going to have to get rid of that and, and take this from me. Messy is good. Creation is messy. And so when you're a perfectionist personality, not only will you, will you do the work, but you'll start measuring right away whether you're achieving the work. Yeah. And it's that self-critic that you have to turn off and only focus on who you are, where you are, what you want, mm -hmm. not on how you're doing. So when you're working, you've got to think there's no scene to do right. There's only a human being living authentically in the given circumstances. But if you try to do the scene right, and try to be the best possible actress ever, you will be in your head the entire time. There's no perfection, there's only process. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. And that's not just you that needs to hear it. I teach it because I need to say that. Right? We all need to learn that. There's no perfection, there's only process. Thank you. Um, 
We've got one more from a director, so hold, stand by. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Hi Sarah. Sarah. Hey, Howard. Um, yeah, I have a question. How, how do you collaborate with an actor who um, sort of chooses not to work from their personal experience, so, who, you know, purely kind of into inventing from imagination? Um, and I guess as a director, you know, to kind of adjust to different actors having different styles. But I'm sort of, you know, particularly interested in how I can prompt or collaborate with that kind of actor. Well, if they're not giving you what they want, if they're using their imagination and it's working, that's fine. If they're using their imagination, but it's not honest, mm. that's a different animal. I would just to have a conversation, start asking some questions, uh, chit chat over lunch yeah. and say, you know, what have you been through? Have you ever had blah, blah, blah? And try to find where the similarities are with the character. Mm -hmm. So with that type of person, usually they'll get their back up if you try to challenge their process. So yeah. you have to come in through the back door <laughs> and just chit chat. And as you start chit chatting, really, have you been betrayed in love before? Because mm -hmm. that's what's happening in the scene. Yeah. Right. And they start talking about it. So, oh my God, I think that's exactly what your character's going through, isn't it? Okay. So you have to, you have to fool them into <laughs> doing what you want. But that's how I would, that's how I would do that. I would vary without confrontation. Because that is, that makes everybody intransigent. Defensive, yeah, of course. Yeah, I would just start asking questions over a casual exchange of food or whatever, and then slide in through the back door until you get them to connect. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Um, well, I, I'll wind it up now. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for turning up today. And um, I think we'd probably all agree with Howard that... Uh, this sort of thing keeps us all sane, um, talking about a craft. I know I love it. Um, so thank you, Howard, for, for bringing your uh, great wisdom. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Thank you very much, Howard. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Media Super is the principal sponsor of the Equity Foundation. For more information about the work of the foundation, visit equityfoundation.org.au or follow Australian Actors' Equity on Facebook and Twitter.